what a city to me should be, which is accepting of ages and races and lifestyles in this messy soup, but yet it still works. We've been kind of been building not just segregated cities, but segregated through age. And that has become uh, more and more concerning to me. Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. June Grant is an architect and community builder in every sense of the word. June is founding principal of Blink Lab Architecture, a boutique research-based architecture practice focused on adaptive and transformative sustainable development. Her design approach rests on an avid belief of cultural empathy, data research, and new technologies as integral design features and design solutions. She's the immediate past president of the San Francisco chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects, also known as NOMA, um, where she's committed to growing a practice of opportunities for underrepresented groups by strengthening the role of communication. And June, it is just such an honor and privilege to have you here. So thank you so much for joining us on Shared Space. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to a conversation. So I thought maybe you could take us in the Wayback Machine and share your earliest memories of realizing that the built environment kind of existed and the impact that it can have on people. Wow. So I have to go back to me as a kid growing up in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And one of the family traditions, my, my mom would drive me to visit my grandfather every Sunday. And I would tell her which route to drive. So you have to imagine me as, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, <laughs> directing my mom which route to take to my grandfather. And, and what she didn't know was I was actually looking at construction sites. So every time mm-hmm. we drove by, the site would have changed. So it went from empty piece of land where we drive by, nothing happening, to suddenly there's activity to then trenching and then rebar and then walls. (laughs) And then before I know it, you know, I'm seeing hundreds of houses and, you know, and then all of a sudden their family's moving in and then me evaluating, well, that's not how I would have done it. Um, You know, so it was just (laughs) this watching how land and space changes and then imagining what the family life was like on on the inside. Um, That was how I became fascinated by the built form, but more about the transformation of space and, and the materials that go into it and the people who are involved. That's, that's my earliest recollection of being fascinated. Now, I don't know at what point in time I learned the word architect. Yeah, totally. But from I was about five years old, that's what I've known I wanted to be. I have no idea where I got the word from. Mm -hmm. I didn't come from a, uh, an environment where that's what we talked about. My mom was an administrative assistant. My dad uh, was an economist in housing. Mm. Um, My grandfather. An economist in housing. Yeah. 
Um, that feels like it's too close to home. Like, tell me more. No, I didn't you know, I'm only five years old. I'm not talking about architecture and buildings. I'm just looking at my dad and having meetings. And um, I, and you have to like picture this because I'm older than you. So you have to picture this. Um, my dad and my parents are from the '60s. Yeah. So there is the in the U.S. is the civil rights, Black liberation movement. Yeah. My dad was studying in the UK, and so they were going through the socialist evolution, um, and everybody was wearing dashikis, and students were uprising. And so my parents come from that time. Yeah. In Jamaica, we were going through the independence movement. So in 1965, Jamaica became independent. And so, you know, from the 60s coming forward, it's this drive about agency and, and self-reliance. Uh, yeah. So that's the background I grew up in. Now, the word architect was not part of that, as far as I know. Yeah. Engineer was not part of that. But building a country yeah. and the energy and the network and the just the coalitions that evolved at that time, yeah, yeah. that's what I grew up in, surrounded yeah. by that. So yeah. I have that naturally ingrained in my psyche. I, um, I mean, I feel like but, your work so speaks to that because it's like when I say community builder, I'm like both a builder of community and like a literal, you know, someone that sculpts and creates the physical form of communities as well, which is super cool. And and what is fascinating to me is um, so the, the other side is the art side where um, a few of my aunts, my mom is from a large family five girls, four boys, and mm -hmm. um, a couple of my aunts dance um, in the National Dance Theater of Jamaica. Oh, and nice. so I grew up going to rehearsals or being aware about dance yeah. rehearsal and theater space and running around between you know, the theater seating, because that was daycare sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I... I became more fascinated with the choreography yeah. than the actual dance movement. You talk about all these different spaces. Like when you think of your childhood and you think of a place that embodied community, like what comes to your mind? Oh man, one of my favorite, and I, you know, someone said to me, you spend your whole life building your past. I lived in a neighborhood called Ashland for a very short time. My cousins actually lived there first. Ashland was designed with these three parks, community parks, mm -hmm. of which in you anyone could walk through them. They, they weren't gated in the heavy gated with security lock gated. They were just fences so that you separate the park space from the street space. But you could yeah. anyone could walk through it in the neighborhood. And all the houses backed up to the park. Mm -hmm. uh, in a way, you might call it a commons, but it really wasn't a commons. It was our neighborhood park. And what I remember is how the entire neighborhood was our playground. So sometimes we would prefer to sit in, on the sidewalks as kids, hanging out, mm -hmm. skateboarding, cycling. Other times we were in the park, just, you know, what teenagers do, sit, smoke, chat plan the next, I don't know, revolution. Mm -hmm. So there are very few boundaries. You get, you didn't get that sense of heavy wall boundary. It's very permeable. 
And what I really remember was every age group was accommodated. So you didn't have a child space versus a teenager space versus an adult or senior citizen space. Yeah. It was just this big green space once a year or twice a year, we had a big neighborhood barbecue, but that was it. It was where adults could go and meet and talk and just decide to sit and enjoy the breeze. Yeah. Um, And I think that ideal, and and maybe because I was a teenager at the time, so it feels idyllic. Um, I find myself thinking about that community often as I compare it to the U.S., Say more. And I think because as I get older, I become aware that in the U.S., we have not been designing for the full life cycle. It's as if we're in complete denial that there is birth, childhood, young adult, adult, family, aging, death. Yes. Yes. We've been we've been designing our cities for the 25 to 35. Yes. Restaurants and cocktail lounges, multi-unit structures with rooftop deck. Where is a child supposed to run? Right? Where is an older person who's 65 supposed to just sit and watch the city? Where is that where where is where is the just the mishmashing of what a city to me should be, which is accepting of ages and races and lifestyles in this messy soup, but yet it still works. We, we've been yeah. kind of been building not just segregated cities, but segregated through age, and that has become. Uh, more and more concerning to me. When I first opened the office, it was I wasn't licensed yet. It was 2003. Being an immigrant and being Jamaican, and we've noticed stereotype about Jamaicans having three jobs. I always intended to have my own studio. The idea mm. of working for someone else was not. It was just a step, stepping stone to the ideal, which was to be independent. And I opened the office 2003, right at the, yeah, the downturn, the market. And with the idea of my passion around form and graphic art and just more on the artistic side. Yeah. And, and then became licensed, changed the name from Blink Designs to Blink Lab Architecture, was still very much focused on the artistic side of design. Yeah. Less about the community, but what I did make a decision around was the fact that the studio would be located in a historically political area. So where my yeah. office is located was pretty close. It's pretty close to where the Black Panther Party was founded. I didn't have enough grassroots connection. Didn't have enough political support. Didn't know enough people with who would be advocates for what I was thinking about. And so I opened up the office. I opened up the office with the mandate to design Oakland, not to redesign Oakland, (laughs) to design Oakland. (laughs) Because my view was... (laughs) You're like, I got aspirations, people. You hear me? I'm taking over. (laughs) But the reason why I said design Oakland, it wasn't so much about bringing design strategies and futuristic views to Oakland was I was looking at our streets and recognizing that we had these huge 
streets, six lane streets that went through neighborhoods. Mm. That needs to be designed. Yeah. That needs to be addressed. Um, why yeah. was the street six lane? Why do we need even four lanes? What is the history behind this street? And it really takes an architect or, or a planner who is in the community and committed to the community to start to address some of these questions. And so that's what my, again, that child of child observer, yeah, looking at Oakland and seeing things that made zero sense to me, but totally. I knew that they had to be redesigned, Yeah, but also the design strategy I would need to know, well, who are the people who live in this community? Because they could probably tell me yeah. why the community looked the way it did. When yeah. did the street become expanded? What was the history behind this street? And it was through just basic inquisitiveness around why does one neighborhood look so different from the other? Mm-hmm. Just that one question allowed me the pathway to talk to people to say, tell me more about this because it's not making sense to me and I'm not going to the library to find out. I want you to tell me. Yes. I, I So I was listening to a talk that you gave and you said, like, I wish we would talk more about the power of observation. Yes. Um, it's only through spending time observing that, like, what's actually going on in the space that you know, you see not only its current impacts, but its latent impacts. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> so we yeah. have to talk about that. And, you know, when, when coffee shops started opening up, I was so excited because I had, I had lived in Florence for a while. I lived in Paris for a while. You know, I've, I've been in the European yeah. coffee culture. I'm like, this is great. You get to just sit and watch and observe. Mm-hmm. And then we started opening up coffee shops. So it was nothing about sitting and observing because you had to buy lots and lots of coffee to earn your seat. And the communities I wanted to observe didn't have any coffee shops. Yeah. So what I started doing was just taking a different route home every time just to see mm. more and then go into community meetings. And it also helps that because my office is literally a retail storefront in the community. Yeah. I get to see the community walk by. I get to hear from other communities because individuals will will literally walk up to my door and knock and say, can you help us with this problem? Or is this something you do? And they'll tell me what it is that's the issue. And I'll be able to say, well, as an architect, I can do X, but here's what I recommend you do so you can get Y done. Uh, And that's how the office slowly pivoted from being just about the building and the shape of the profile of the building or how the building works to sustainable design is actually more about understanding the ecosystem that's there. And for me to even come up with a solution, I need to spend time understanding that ecosystem. And that's really how the, the, the studio has slightly pivoted to have a wider community portfolio than a private portfolio. Yeah. So I want to dig into this overarching theme of community and connection, which I think runs throughout all of your work. And I think that the work that you've done around in-law units or uh, accessory dwelling units, as they're more formally known, um, is such an amazing manifestation of this. And I'd like to start with just level set us. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that people are facing trying to keep their communities together so that we can start to understand the solutions that you all came up with. 
So accessory dwelling units, also known as granny flats, also known as in-law units, detached unit, even sometimes a basement unit is considered a granny flat. Mm-hmm. But for anyone, accessory dwelling units is this independent living unit, smaller than a house, smaller than your typical house, with a full, you know, kitchen, bathroom, your own social spaces. It gives you complete independence, but in a smaller footprint. And why I'm attracted to in-law units and the role it plays as a solution to what's going on in cities, and it's a, it's a parallel story. Every year for the past 15 years, I've gone up to Ashland, Oregon, which is just on the, up, on the opposite side of the border of California. So Ashland, Oregon is a college town, mm-hmm. but Ashland, Oregon is this unique city layout that includes in-law units, granny flats as part of the urban plan. Mm-hmm. So you have the main house, and you have these hundred-year-old smaller independent units. Yeah. And to support these smaller independent units is an alleyway. So the mm-hmm. city has this rather fine-grained um, street system. That's your main arteries, your main streets, and then you have the alley streets, which are not as smoothly paved; they're more gravel, but they provide access to the smaller units and the in-law units. And what I loved about these in-law units and that gravel street was the community that was created Mm -hmm. by the people who live in these smaller units. They had their own little engagement system. They would get together and have parties, but also there were small businesses, jewelry designers and graphic Mm -hmm. designers were using these spaces, some for living and some for business. And I yeah. found that to be truly exciting because it meant that retail was not just on the main street, retail was yeah. everywhere. Simultaneously, the Bay Area became very, very, even wealthier than it was before. Rents started to increase uh, exponentially. And I would say 2015, 2016, Oakland started to experience an incredible wave of San Francisco residents moving to Oakland. Yeah. Now, historically, the two groups, you know, connected by the bridge were two different environments. Mm. Um, There was almost like a mental barrier between Oaklanders going to San Francisco and vice versa. Suddenly, Oakland was hot. San Franciscans were coming to Oakland to experience Oakland life. We were, we had grit and suddenly great rents in san francisco was was exorbitant and yeah many flooded to oakland because it was cheaper um well the impact was the housing stock and the families that lived there many families had lived there for generations yeah and they had inherited the houses the houses now which which originally might have been a couple thousand were now valued at a million and above Oh my God. Some of these families will never earn a million dollars in their entire working life. And yeah. suddenly they realize they're living in a valuable asset. So, what are you going to do? You're yeah. going to sell. Yeah. Uh, and so, what happened was many, many families sold. And it came to my attention uh, a young woman, Annette, she said she wanted to build an in law unit. And I knew that Annette could not afford my services. Yeah. But I asked her why. And she explained that she wanted to live on the land that her family had owned for five generations and she wanted to build her apartment on the property so she could have her own building and the rest of the family live in the main house. 
And I said to her, okay, how many, do you have any friends who want to build? Because my idea was if I can get a group of annex mm. together, then I could spread my fee across multiple projects rather than one project. Yeah. So I was trying to get her fee lower by spreading, you know, totally spreading the wealth kind of. And then she explained to me that there used to be 24 families, African-American families on her block, and there were now five. And that my eyes blew wide open. But when she right. said she no longer feels safe in her neighborhood, that's when I got really, really, really angry and really concerned because yeah. it's one thing to feel like there's few of you left. It's another to feel that your physical safety is no longer there, that the thing that you grew up with, the knowing, the people who knew you, the rhythms, the life cycles that yeah. you knew about your community had disappeared and you suddenly feel as if this is not your community that you literally grew up in. One of the things that gets me is like when I read that, I, I, I realized how much that's the unique story of her and that neighborhood and the general story of so many people across the nation. And it's a story of not just African-Americans, but of course it touches me more because it is an African-American story. What was happening was the third migration. While the first and second migrations were voluntary economic in the sense that they were going to a better economic future from the South mm. and North, mm -hmm. what this was was a forced push out where families were selling and then moving to a second tier city that was cheaper where they had very little social infrastructure yeah. would probably be traveling, spending two or three hours in transit to get to their jobs in San Francisco. I mean, it was yeah. just a complete disruption of a life. And yes. that for me was just, it just, it tore at me. And when she told me about her being one of five, I started looking literally at maps to see where yeah. are people going and what's going on with communities and at the same time, we had all the Facebook posts, new people moving into neighborhoods were making comments about people who lived there before. You know, we got the barbecue Beckys and others. Why the in-law unit was critical, in my view, was a way of holding ground yeah. and a way for families to be able to hold on to their property was to invest in the property, to take yeah. some of the cash value out of the house and build a unit at the back that they could A, rent out yeah. b put a elderly person who was renting elsewhere have them come yes. back to the family yes see um professors who oh you know we know college yeah. professors do not earn a lot um mm. and could not possibly afford a market rate studio in a new building no. um you know young families who are just starting out or a young married couple just start, it, it provides that missing spatial unit that we had not been building for the last 50 years because all yeah. we've been building were units for 25 to 35 year olds yeah and this was now looking at a, a type of a housing type that actually had a relationship with where you were in your life cycle yeah and being being adaptable enough and and, and to me like not only where you are in your life cycle but this understanding of when you said it at the beginning this this talk about throughout the life cycle and how how we need all of the generations, how, you know, like right now through this pandemic, how many of us are, you know, our families may be the only people we see and the only way that we have childcare during, you know, a very crazy time. And it's like, 
Well, an in-law unit makes that possible, makes that connection, makes, but, but this idea of everybody's so dispersed and loses the community, it, it's really, I think it's such a bigger loss than we realize. That's um, and, and, and also a bigger contribution, I would think, because now yes. we look at the in-law unit as a solution yes. during the pandemic is how many people have not been able to pay their rents. If you had an in-law unit, that person could probably come back to the family unit. Yeah. Um, isolation, a place to isolate, uh, quarantine, yes. if possibly ill, yes. working from home. Oh, um, I know, right? We're probably going to be home for another year, maybe. Um, yeah. Having that extra space at the back where you're working yeah. separate from the family and, and being able to separate work from home, I think is critical. Yeah. Um, and there's so many businesses that were little cottage businesses that what if we allow the person to sell yeah. from that cottage? Because right now by zoning, yeah. you're not allowed to operate a business. But what if mm-hmm. we allowed the person yeah. to have a small business that they mm-hmm. did transactions in, from this cottage? What, the, what does that mean for a community? Well, we can get trade going again. Have you heard of Big in Australia and it's come over here and the idea started with women are much more comfortable getting together to talk and to be together, right? Right. Men are sort of like, we need a thing to do. And so the original idea started off with older adults, all of the men that would come with their wives and just sort of like sit in the car, just whatever, you know, and they said, okay, let's like create a workshop. Like a shed where we can build things and create things. And and I think we need that not only for social connection, but also for like skills, skills development. You're like, okay, then throw some younger kids in there. And like you start getting training for free. Like, Like, you know, we need all this new furniture type to separate our spaces so the student, their kids can learn. And and, and you can have a, a separate space to working in the house where you feel that that's a designated location where you're actually sheltered away. You know, I've, I've heard you talk about the idea of it's not only, yes, that these units are helpful because, you know, of all the reasons we just discussed, but it's also in the act of building, you are helping to create jobs. And your, and your own self sense of self-worth and your yeah. own sense of what you're able to do. And having these spaces and opportunities to come together around problem solving or creating and yeah. inventing as a group, as a unit. I think these are these are experiences that we are missing that are critical yeah. to not to both our sense of self-worth, but also for the health of a community. Why AARP reached out to you about this topic and why it's so relevant for some of the challenges um, that we're facing right now. When AARP reached out to me, that was a shock (laughs) because working on the project had been a private endeavor with my husband coming in to make models for me. My husband's a chef, so he knows knows nothing about architecture and model making. And so he was making models. I was just really scared about the number of African-Americans and losing, you know, losing ground and yeah. Just I was in a tunnel vision and fear about yeah. we're being pushed out and we got to do something about it. And so I was yeah. head down coming up with design ideas and I had, I was invited to do an online 
a 15-minute presentation, no video, just audio and slides yeah. through Design Impact Hub or uh, was Autodesk Foundation um, mm-hmm. out of the blue. I don't yeah. know how they found me because I don't do didn't do much advertising back then. Um, and through that recording, uh, I think it was Shannon Guzman, who's a senior strategist at ARP. She heard the recording and reached out to me um, to learn more about what I was doing. And I, you know, I explained to her what I was doing and she explained what AARP was interested in law units. And I said, well, you know, this is a national issue. But what they brought to my attention was the vulnerability that faced the older adults. And ARP made me so much more sensitive to the statistics. Because that after the first conversation, of course, I went back to the census (laughs) numbers and realized, (laughs) holy crap, we are an er we are an aging society. We are no longer a young society. We, we we have to build because we're living yeah. longer and more and more of us are living to be a hundred years old and we haven't prepared. Yeah. And so they're reaching out to me and being willing to sponsor the catalog um, was a godsend because that's exactly what I was working on on my own was this idea of creating an Ikea catalog of in-law units. I would put yeah. them on my website and, you know, you could just download and do as you wish because yeah. we needed housing. That's, that I was just on the, we yeah. needed housing. We need housing. We need housing. They continued to support me um, in this push mm-hmm. because my working with them, I was able to let them know which cities I thought were really, really vulnerable and um, how we needed to be able to broadcast that information and let those cities know that yeah. they need to be a lot more aggressive about the change and the aggressive. And so I'm really proud, you know, going forward two years, I'm really proud of the number of cities that now have in-law unit ordinances on the books. Yeah. Um, we just finished writing the 20 year update for AARP's uh, in-law unit ordinance. Oh, nice. Um, and it's a, it's a model code that they pitch to various states and cities to encourage them yeah. to, to, to embrace the new codes. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, we just finished that. I'm really proud because for the first time we now begin to address equity in the yeah. language, which we didn't before, Good. before it was just blind to race and history. Yeah. Um, and so my, my role in the group was to look at it from the perspective of those who have been disenfranchised or those who were not able to take advantage of opportunities in the past, how to change the language to be a little bit more accommodating and more sensitive that some groups need actually more leeway. And that's been incredible. So what's one thing that you wish more people knew about designing for social connection that we could use to inform? Oh, that's a tough question. Because as much as I'm having fun talking, I'm really an introvert. And so Mm -hmm. it's really hard for me. But I think it's just that power of observation. Yeah. That if you just pause and just spend the time looking. There was a a young film director just this week. He got an award at, um, and I think his name is Juan... I know it's Juan Gonzalez, Juan Pablo Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, if you just look, the community will tell you what it is. Hmm. I said, that's exactly it. If you yeah. just look. And, I, and yeah. I, that for me is 
I think the key, not just the community building, but I really would wish our architecture schools and our urban design schools and all our design schools spent a lot more time on observation and less on canon. That is, that is actually the thing I desire the most. All right. Well, June Grant, it has been such an amazing pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming and sharing yourself and your stories with Shared Space. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And I I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.